0: I'm not used to having a microphone. Good morning, everybody. I am blessed this morning to have the privilege of of reading Scripture. And I will be reading from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. So there are the last six verses in uh, chapter 10. One of the things that I really enjoy about uh, being asked to read Scripture is it gives me an opportunity or encourages me dig in a little bit deeper and try to understand a bit more about the book or the passages I'm reading. So I spent a little bit of time looking into the book of Mark this week and wanted to pass along a few things just to kind of set the stage. So this book was written about 55 to 65 AD, so maybe 20 or 25 years after the Lord died for us on the cross. And it was written, uh, depending on which research you you believe, it was either written by a, a gentleman named John Mark, or it was written by unknown. We know better than that. We know it was written by God, and God used scribes on earth to actually write this stuff down. So in this case, God worked through Peter, the apostle, uh, and and using a scribe named John Mark to write the book of Mark. Now, um, as we know, uh, Jesus did a lot of walking. He and and the disciples walked through Judea and whatnot to to, uh, uh, preach the good word of, of the Lord. And um, seeing this as the last six verses in this chapter, and the very first word is then, it made me want to go back and see what happened before that, like then or therefore or, or because of. So what I want to do is just give you a few highlights on what happened in chapter 10 prior to getting to uh, verse 42 or 46. Um, Jesus and the disciples are walking through Judea, and one of the first things they do is they come across... One of the Pharisees, and these are always my favorite stories in the Bible because the Pharisees are always challenging Jesus about something, and every time he smacks him down. Well, how can you argue with God, right? You're not going to win that argument. So he he's confronted by the Pharisees, and they're talking about divorce, and he kind of uh, schools them on that. And then there's uh, passages regarding the little children and the parents bringing little children to see Jesus, and the disciples are actually saying, you know rebuking and saying no get them away you know take them away and whatnot and Jesus say no bring the children to me because it's the people that are children like that will be uh, uh, in heaven someday. One of my favorite passages in this chapter is uh, about a rich man that comes to Jesus and I can just picture this guy on his knees head bowed eyes closed hands clasped and saying Lord what do I need to do to get to heaven and the Lord mentions a few of the Ten Commandments. You know, you can't murder, you can't commit adultery and things like that. And I can just picture this guy going, okay, I got it knocked. Because he says, I've done this since I was a little boy. And then Jesus says very lovingly, he says, and plus you need to sell everything you own, give the money to the poor, and follow me. And the scripture says the man's face fell. Well, I can just imagine again. The guy's on his knees, head down, eyes closed. And his the wind is coming out of his cell, oh my gosh. And then one of my favorite passages is where Jesus says that it is, it is almost as difficult, more difficult, to drive a camel through a, a, a needle's eye, which is impossible for us, uh, than for a rich person to make it to heaven. And that's pretty powerful stuff. So that kind of leads us up to the reason I'm actually here, and that's to read... Uh, Uh, chapter four, I'm sorry, verse 46 to 52 about blind Bartimaeus and how he receives his sight. I'm reading from the NIV version. Then, as I mentioned, they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and called him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing, off his, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The, the blind man said, Rabbi, I want, I want to see. Jesus said, go, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road.
1: Thanks, Mike. And good morning, all. This thing working, Ethan? That is, good. Uh, my name is Gary. Um, I am actually given the honor this morning of filling in for Pastor Jason. Uh, he and his wife are uh, in Texas and uh, closing on their house this week, which was an, an awesome thing and um, <laughs> You could have told me, Melissa) <laughs> <laughs> um, no, where was I? Yeah. Um, anyway, James, uh, Pastor Jason has been going through the book of James, and um, in filling in, I wanted to try to do something that at least in some way relates to James, and one of the overriding uh, themes in James, as you probably know, is trials and our reaction to them. Um, count it all joy, my brethren, when you experience various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience or perseverance. Um, Many of you have heard of America's pastor, Chuck Swindoll. Uh, He's quite well known for something he said decades ago and probably thousands of times since then. But he said, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. And I think this morning, uh, in looking at the life of this man in John chapter 10, I think we found someone uh, who absolutely epitomizes that saying, that life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you react to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for life and breath this morning. Thank you that Melissa is here and that she got here safely. We ask you to bring Jason back uh, as well. Are the boys here? The boys are here too. Glad, uh, Lord, thank you that uh, their kids are here safely. Um, and we thank you this morning uh, for your word. Your word says that the entrance of it gives light. Uh, Lord, may your word enter us. May it, uh, may it affect us. May it change us. Uh, make us open on the Godward side that we can be different people because we were here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Greatest battle in the Western Hemisphere, the greatest battle ever fought in the Western Hemisphere was July 1, 2, and 3 of 1863. And those of you who are history-minded already know I'm talking about the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, 85,000 Union troops fought 65,000 Confederate troops, 150,000 men having at each other in vicious battle for three days. On the second day of the battle, the Confederates had done well the first day, and uh, Robert E. Lee, along with his Maine Lieutenant, uh, General James Longstreet, uh, were going to attempt to flank uh, the Union, the Union line. Uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was the Colonel of the 20th Maine. And he and his men uh, were on their way to Gettysburg during the first day of battle and arrived literally at dawn on the second day of battle. When they arrived, uh, they were told by uh, the commanding officer who grabbed them and took them immediately to the far left flank of the Union line. The Union line is along what's called Cemetery Ridge, and they were facing the Confederate line a mile away along what was called Seminary ridge because there's actually a Lutheran seminary there. So Chamberlain and his regiment are placed at the far left flank of the Union line on a little hill called Little Round Top. And the man who placed them there said, Colonel Chamberlain, you need to understand something. Your men need to hold. We believe that General Longstreet is going to try to flank on either side, most likely your side. If that's true, he will try to flank. He will come up this hill. You have the advantage of being on the high ground. He'll come up this hill uh, with hundreds or thousands. If you, if you and your regiment do not hold, he flanks us, and that means he comes around and takes the entire Union army from behind. He said, and that would be bad news for us. You must hold out to the last. So he leaves. Uh, Chamberlain sets up his line, his men. They build a very crude makeshift rock wall, and literally within 10 or 15 minutes they're attacked by the 15th Alabama, I'm sorry, the uh, 20th Alabama Regiment led by William Colonel William C. Oates, and Oates and his Alabamans charge up the hill viciously trying to dislodge and overtake Chamberlain and the men of the 20th Maine. The fight goes on for 90 minutes, approximately an hour and a half, uh, historians estimate that 40,000 rounds were fired during that hour and a half. Five times the Confederates charged uphill, a very steep hill if you've ever been there. Five times they charged uphill and five times they were repulsed. Sometimes the, the fighting was so intense it, became, it was hand to hand. Chamberlain said at one point, I remember standing on my line and looking down in both directions and seeing as many gray uniforms as blue right in the line. That's how close and how intense the fighting was. After the fifth charge, Chamberlain realizes, he's told by his brother Tom, who was kind of his adjutant, we're out of ammunition. And Chamberlain says, well we can't leave, we can't run, we can't, we don't have any ammunition to fight, fix bayonets. And they fix bayonets and Chamberlain makes one of the boldest moves that anyone's ever made in military history. They then fix bayonets, come up with a strategy to swing like a gate. Instead of going straight down the hill, they swing like a gate. And they charge, screaming like wild banshees, at Oates and his men as they come back up the hill. Now, what Chamberlain didn't realize was that Oates and his men were exhausted and... We're making a last charge, I think, out of valor and duty more than uh, chances of success. And when Chamberlain and his men came charging down the hill at Oates and his Alabamans, half of them immediately dropped their arms and surrendered. The other half ran for dear life. For his and that, honestly, that that stand by Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Maine Regiment, a lot of scholars believe decided the outcome of the Battle of Gettysburg and potentially the outcome of the war. If if Lee and the Confederates had won at Gettysburg, there's an excellent chance that the South would have sued for peace and the Confederate States of America would have been a permanent reality. For his day on Little Round Top, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. He went on to serve throughout the rest of the war, being wounded six times in battle, The last time that he was wounded was at the Battle of Petersburg, Virginia, very near the end of the war. And his his wound was was so serious that they honestly didn't believe that he was going to survive. And General Ulysses Grant issued an instant battlefield commission promoting Chamberlain to the rank of Brigadier General in honor of his service to the Union because they honestly didn't think he was gonna live. But he fooled them again. He did live, survived the war, went on to serve four terms as the governor of Maine, and after that returned to his alma mater, Bowdoin College as the president, uh, where he proceeded to teach every single subject in the curriculum with the exception of mathematics. The wound that he suffered at Petersburg caused him pain every single day for the rest of his life. But his brother Tom would later say, I think I heard him mention it twice over the coming decades. You know, one of his biographers has said this about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. He seemed to have an inborn gift for inspiring men. I don't have any trouble believing that. I don't know about you, but just reading about him inspires me. A man who said war is a terrible thing that makes good men better and bad men worse. He said, but he also said this, and this is where I got the uh, the question from for the greeting time. He said, courage is intrinsically linked to character. Courage is intrinsically linked to character. And he saw his service as a test of his own character because it required courage. But can I suggest to you that the man that Mike Middleton just read, uh, to us about from Mark chapter Ten, a man named Bartimaeus is also an example of incredible courage he was uh, He was a beggar, but hey, what else could he be? <laughs> What else could he be? In first century Palestine, under Roman rule, uh, there was no social security, there, uh, there was no financial aid, no disability, no public assistance of any kind. So if you were handicapped or, or uh, didn't have the use of your legs or you were blind, the best thing you could hope for was a career in begging. And that's exactly what Bartimaeus was doing. Can you imagine how hard it would be to endure an existence like that. To be dependent day after day on the pity of passers-by who would throw coins at at your spread-out tunic or coat, cloak, and be dependent on that for the absolute essentials of life. Imagine the bitterness that could sweep over a person's soul. Imagine the resentment that could sweep over a person's soul. Imagine the anger that could overtake a person like that. It's not always easy, is it, to count it all joy when not one trial comes into your life, but when your entire life is a trial. It would be natural to be hardened, to be bitter, but you know what? Not Bartimaeus. Not Bartimaeus. And as he sat by the gateway, the entrance to the city of Jericho, he was collecting something that would turn out to be far more valuable than coins. He was collecting information. He was a listener. He was a learner. And as many of you know, if you, uh, if you're deprived of your sight, uh, you become all the more expert at listening and listen, Bartimaeus did. And again, he's in a strategic position, so there's hundreds of people, no doubt, passing by him every day. And he hears, as he's listening, he's been listening and learning about this famous teacher from, from some say from Nazareth, some say from Galilee. Uh, I'm sure Bartimaeus was sorting through all of those things. But he gets this bit of information one day that Jesus is coming to Jericho. And Bartimaeus is prepared, he's excited. <laughs> And he set himself up, maybe in his usual place, maybe, I don't know, even a little closer to the gate than he would usually be, I'm not sure. But he set up, and when Jesus finally comes into town, you can imagine the noise, you can imagine the uproar. And he says this in Mark chapter 10, and verse 47. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Are you impressed by that remark? I am. I'm really impressed. Because you know what? The vast majority of people there that day would have referred to Jesus as the Nazarene. Uh, Some called him the Galilean. Uh, Some called him the teacher or the rabbi. But I guarantee you there were precious few, if any, that would have called him the son of David. And by calling him the son of David, Bartimaeus reveals again that he's been collecting something far more valuable than coins. He's been collecting information about who Jesus is. He's probably been, even though he couldn't read it for himself, he's probably been schooled in all of the Old Testament stories and prophets. And he's come to the personal conclusion that this Jesus, this one that he has heard, heals, bl- heals lame, makes blame beggars walk and blind men see. Bartimaeus has come to believe that he is the promised son of David foretold by the Old Testament prophets, the one who would be the savior, the messiah of Israel, the king of Israel. He's completely convinced of who Jesus is. So am I impressed by that? Boy, am I impressed by that. And you know what, guys, the the gospel writers use irony. Think of the irony here. Here's a man with two glazed over white spheres in his head, completely blind. He's surrounded by people, most of whom have perfect 20-20 vision. And yet with the eyes of his soul, Bartimaeus is able to see Jesus Christ for who he is when the crowd surrounding him has no clue, or most of them have no clue who Jesus is. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, the crowd's not too kind about that, uh, as we'll see in one second here. They begin, they begin to rebuke him, the scripture says, holler at him. But you know what? That doesn't deter Bartimaeus. That doesn't bother Bartimaeus. He has hope in his heart instead of hopelessness because he knows who Jesus is. And because he knows who Jesus is, he has courage in his heart. Courageous determination, I would call it. Courageous determination because he knows who Jesus is. So he's not afraid at all. Look what the crowd says in verse 48, the first line. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. See the word rebuke there? It's uh, it's only significant because it's uh, it's an infinitive. In other words, um, in the, basically it means that they didn't just rebuke him once, they kept on rebuking him. And I guarantee you it wasn't gracious rebuking. It wasn't kind rebuking. I guarantee it was things like, shut up, blind man. You don't really think the teacher's concerned about you, do you? Shut up. Bartimaeus is undeterred, completely undeterred. Look at the second line. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I guarantee in a crowd that large, he's trying to get Jesus' attention. He wants to make sure that Jesus hears him. So he's not saying it quietly. (laughs) He's screaming it out. He's shouting it out. So they keep on rebuking him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, his courage in one sense is surprising, in another sense it's not. When you think about it, some of the most courageous people in history have been blind. We all know the story of Helen Keller, who was not only blind, but deaf and dumb as well. And went on basically to lead a life so fulfilling and compelling that she changed the world of her day and changed people's perception of people who were deaf, dumb, and blind, people with severe learning, severe handicaps. I know you've all heard of Helen Keller. How many have heard of Fanny Crosby? Yeah, some of you um, saints of long standing <laughs> have heard of Fanny Crosby. At six weeks old, she had an infection in her eyes, and the doctor who came to treat her, a country doctor, got red-hot compresses and put the red-hot compresses on her infected eyes, and it blinded her for life. She had a godly mom who, as she grew up, kept telling her about the Lord, and at nine years of age, Fanny Crosby came to personal faith in Jesus Christ. And she prayed that she said, when I came to faith, almost immediately, I prayed that somehow God would use me, that somehow I would be, even though I was blind, that I would be useful for his kingdom and his glory. I didn't know how, but somehow, Lord, would you use me? She said, and what I felt in my heart was the Lord saying this, be courageous. Be courageous. And then she wrote this poem. I love this. Listen, Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind? I cannot and I won't. Wow. Can you hear the courageous determination in those words? Uh, I know all of you have heard of Helen Keller. Most of you have heard of Fanny Crosby, but I know that none of you have heard of Ralph Kramer. That's because Ralph Kramer was a fellow student of mine at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Ralph and his uh, yellow-seeing eye dog, um, Cosby, were very well known on campus. Ralph was honestly one of the just one of the neatest guys I've ever met, but one of the most courageous guys I ever met and have one of the best sense of humor of anybody I, I ever met. I'll never forget sitting in class one day, um, I had just bought a, Janine and I were living on a pretty fixed budget. I just bought a new laptop and I, I got a deal on a Fujitsu. This is back in the mid-90s uh, and it wasn't the best, but it was great to me. And Ralph's got a new computer and he bought a brand new IBM and one of the new students didn't know Ralph, and he leans over, he could see that he was blind, but I'll never forget during a break in a class, he leans over and he says, uh, Mr. Kramer, he said, you, is that a new laptop? And Ralph said, yeah, yeah, brand new. He said, uh, well, it's, it, it's an IBM, isn't it? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, well, what made you buy that? And he said, well, isn't it obvious? He goes, the screen call. He goes, look at what McNally bought. He said he bought one of those cheap Fujitsu's. He goes, look at the screen. Look at his screen. It's pathetic. He said, look at my screen. Look at how clear it is. And the guy's, the guy's looking like this, you know? And he keeps looking at Ralph. And Ralph's looking, at, <laughs> looking over toward me because he knows where I'm at. And he's, and he's just kind of smiling. We're in, we're, in, we're in the student lounge one day, and the same guy got talking to him. And, I, <laughs> and you would have thought the guy would have gotten a little you know, realize he's up against a pretty sharp character here. And he says, Ralph, he said, can I ask you a personal question? He said, sure. What? He goes, have you been blind your whole life? And Ralph says, not yet. (laughs) (laughs) A man of incredible, courageous determination. And you see, guys, it doesn't matter if you have 20, 20 vision or no vision at all. You can have the courage of a Helen Keller or a Fanny Crosby, or a Ralph Kramer. By the way, going back to Fanny Crosby, she died at the age of 95 in 1915, and by the time of her death, she had written over 5,000 hymns. My favorite, and I'm sure most of you know this, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, Heir of Salvation, Purchase of God, Born of His Spirit, Washed in His Blood. Say it with me. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And that's what Fanny Crosby did right up until the day of her death at age 95. Courageous, courageous determination. So again, it doesn't matter if you have 20-20 vision or you have no vision at all. If you, with the eyes of your soul, did you know your soul has eyes? If with the eyes of your soul you can see Jesus Christ crucified for you, if with the eyes of your soul you can see that by dying on the cross for your sins, Jesus Christ did everything that God requires for you to go to heaven when you die, if you can see that with the eyes of your soul, the Bible says at that very moment God gives you eternal life and you will never, ever perish. That's good news. It's the best news any of us have ever, ever heard. Well, Bartimaeus' courageous determination pays off because of two words. Look at verse 49. Jesus stopped. Or your version might say, Jesus stood still. Jesus stopped and called him. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they... Now, keep in mind, this is the crowd that a few minutes before was rebuking him, hollering at him repeatedly. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. <laughs> Guys, if nothing else teaches you not to worry about what the world thinks, that oughta. That's the world for you. Today you're a hero, the next day you're a dog. And, and it doesn't even necessarily depend on something you've really done or, or haven't done. It may just depend on who they've been talking to lately. So don't worry about the favor of the world. Bartimaeus certainly didn't. Stand up. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. And you know what? I have no idea how in a crowd with that kind of noise going on, I have no idea how Jesus heard Bartimaeus' hollering out or calling to him, but I do know this. Remember this, guys. Whenever there's a cry of mercy from a heart of faith, Jesus hears. Whenever there's a cry for mercy from a heart of faith, Jesus always hears. And he hears Bartimaeus. Call him. Cheer up. Get on your feet. He's calling you. So Bartimaeus gets up. And then notice verse 50, Mark 10 and verse 50. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And you have to understand how precious a cloak was in the ancient world. Precious to ordinary folks who didn't have serious handicap, but especially precious if you're a blind beggar. And what I, you know, when I look at this and I, and I think of my own coronality, I see, Bartimaeus, what are you doing? Don't, go, don't throw your cloak away. Don't throw your cloak aside. You're going to need that. And by the way, if you, when you go to replace it, or if you have to replace it, if you can't find it, it's going to take weeks, maybe months of begging to get enough money together to buy another cloak. But you know what? Bartimaeus is not only a man of courageous determination, he's also a man of courageous dependence courageous dependence. You see, he's going to Jesus knowing that he's the promised son of David, he's the Messiah, and don't mistake it, there's, there's a working of God in his heart. Nobody, nobody come. We don't come to faith all along. God works in our hearts, right? John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God is working in Bartimaeus' heart, But Bartimaeus, as he goes to Jesus, has no doubt, I think, no doubt that he's going to receive his sight. He's going to the son of David, so he's not worried about his garment. And if he does want to come back and get it, well, guess what? He can come back and look for it with his own two eyes. I don't think he's worried about it one little bit. Furthermore, I don't think he really thinks he's going to need it. He's going to the son of David, and he's going in courageous determination and courageous dependence. You know, in those days, beggars' garments, I was just reading this yesterday, they were often very colorful. Uh, It was without a doubt their most prized possession. Just to give you an idea of how important uh, a garment was, again, not just for a blind beggar, but for any folk in the, in the old testament law in exodus chapter 22 there's a verse that says if you accept a person's garment as surety in other words if you accept it as a collateral for a loan of some kind or a, or or you know they want to borrow something expensive so you take their cloak and hold it until they bring it back you know what exodus 22 says it says you must return his or her garment by sundown else How will that person stay warm at night? It's in the Old Testament law. So Bartimaeus throws the cloak aside. He's going to Jesus. And you know what he proves by doing that? He proves that he's depending on Jesus totally, totally. Can I ask you this morning, what are you depending on? Or to say it a little differently, What's the greatest dependency in your life? Do your wife or your husband? Do your job? Your 401k? Your house? Your kids? Can I suggest to you that, and I wish this saying was original with me, but it's not. It's original with one of my mentors. who's who's now with the Lord. But he used to say this, and I never forgot it. If you have any dependency that is greater than your dependency on Jesus Christ, it is ultimately an unhealthy dependency. You know why? Husband, because your wife will disappoint you. Wife, your husband will disappoint you. Mom and dad, your kids will disappoint you. Kids your mom and dad will disappoint you. Just ask mine. And I think, you know what came to my mind this morning? I was sitting here while, uh, while they were trying to get my PowerPoint straightened out because I think I made a mess of it, but uh, thanks to the tech, the sound booth people, it's working. But it reminded me of David's words in Psalm 27. Even if my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. Jesus Christ needs to be the greatest dependency of our life. And that's exactly what's going on with Bartimaeus here. You know, when when Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Maine, uh, he lost a third of his strength. A third of his men fell in that battle. Um, By the way, I didn't tell you how grossly they were outnumbered. Did you know that Oates and his 15th Alabama Regiment had 3,000 men? Chamberlain and his 20th Maine Regiment had 386 men. but thank goodness for them the hill was really steep and the Confederates couldn't get up it. But Chamberlain lost a third of his strength. So as the third day of the battle, at dawn on the third day, a messenger comes to get them and says, Colonel Chamberlain, you and your men are going to the quietest spot on the field. You're going right to the center of the Union line your, your men who have minor wounds, who haven't been tended to already, you're going to be tended to, you're going to be given hot meals, you're going to be completely uh, resupplied with, you know, am- munitions, anything you need. And you know, it must feel good, doesn't it, sometimes to have people take care of us, to have friends and family and loved ones, and even a church family that takes care of us, that, that that brings comfort and consolation, and those are all good things. But if we come to depend on any of those things, we're in for a rude awakening. Chamberlain and his men were delighted to be going to the quietest spot on the field on that third day, at the center of the Union line on Cemetery Ridge. And that afternoon, Pickett's Charge took place and the cannon fire erupted on the center of the line in the middle, right right where Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and his men were. They were caught in the thick of the fighting again. So our greatest dependency can't be the wonderful things that God is surrounded with. It has to be the Lord himself. So Bartimaeus is standing before Jesus. And he gets specific now. Notice Mark 10 and verse 51, Jesus says what do you want me to do for you? You know, a lot of times we, we pray and we're, we may be just anxious, just upset. Uh, if you're like me, you've struggled with anxiety my whole life. Sometimes I just pray and I'm just feeling really anxious. And I don't tell the Lord exactly what's on my mind at the moment. But there's times when I realize he wants us to say exactly why we're upset or we're anxious or what we need from him. And he gets very specific with Bartimaeus here. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, and I love this, the NIV doesn't show it. The NIV just says rabbi. But the actual word here, if you're looking at New King James, you'll see it. The actual word is rabboni. Uh, It's not a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's an Aramaic word. But it's, it's, it's like a term of ultimate respect. It's the greatest title that a rabbi can be addressed as, but it's also a term of affection. So it's a term of huge respect and of affection. Bartimaeus says, Rabboni, I want to see. Or your version might say that I may receive my sight. Go your way, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight. He received the sight, and isn't isn't it interesting? He's he's face-to-face with Jesus, and, and this just reminded me, just like the man in John chapter 9, when his eyes are open, for the first time in his life, the very first face that he sees is the face of Jesus Christ. Immediately, he received his sight. And you know what? Bartimaeus is... I'm sure, blown away. But whatever he saw in the face of Jesus, he decided he wanted to see a lot more. (laughs) Whatever he had encountered being with and around the person of Jesus, he wanted more. How do I know that? Well, look at the last part of the line. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. He followed Jesus along the road. You see, Bartimaeus is not only a man of courageous determination and courageous uh, dependence. He's also a man of courageous dedication, courageous dedication. I would have said, where do you think you're going, Bartimaeus? I mean, it's, it's wonderful. You got your sight back. Glad to hear it. First thing you need to do is go back and find your cloak. And then, you know, let's go talk this over. You know, let's celebrate a little. Let's find out, you know, what what God has for you from here on in. Not Bartimaeus. Not Bartimaeus. I would have said, you know, where are you going to get your next meal from if you just follow Jesus down the road? The Rumor has it he's heading for Jerusalem. That's 16 miles away. Where are you going to sleep tonight? How are you going to stay warm tonight? Bartimaeus isn't concerned about any of those things. He's really not. You know, eternal life is absolutely free. As I said a moment ago, the minute with the eyes of your soul that you can see Jesus Christ crucified for you, the minute with the eyes of your soul you can see that by dying on the cross for your sins, Jesus did everything that God requires for you to go to heaven. At that moment, God gives you eternal life as a free gift, absolutely free, no strings attached, not like the used car commercials where they have the guy that speaks real fast at the end. It really is free. But, but, following Jesus along the road of life, that takes courage. To follow Jesus, no matter how painful life gets, takes courage. To follow Jesus, regardless of the temptations in life, and are sometimes caving to those temptations, takes courage. To follow Jesus in spite of the disappointments of life takes courage. And to follow Jesus in spite of the inevitable heartbreaks of life takes courage. But take courage, take courage friends, Psalm 27, I quoted before, even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. The first part of that says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the defender of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, the Lord himself has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So I can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's why we can have courageous dedication. That's why we can endure, as James says. That's why we can count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Because the Lord's perfecting us and we know how it all ends, don't we? We know who wins, if I could put it another way. Just by application as we draw to a close. What does this mean for us? Well, maybe for for some of you it means you can go back to that difficult person that's that's creating more heartache and more pain in your life than you you can describe. Or you can go back to that difficult job that you're so fed up with that you're convinced you can't stay there another day. Or you can go back to that painful problem in your marriage that has you so discouraged that you think you might be ready to quit. If you do that, if you do that, if you if you approach those things as Bartimaeus did with courageous determination, courageous dependence, and courageous dedication, then I can guarantee you the Lord will never forsake you. I can guarantee you he will give you the strength to keep on, and I can also guarantee you that when we cross the finish line someday, it will be worth it all. Father, we thank you for the courage, the example of this great man. And we ask you, in Jesus' name, to make your word real, to make it relevant, and most of all, to make it life-transforming in the hearts of your people here this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen.